Please turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Ezekiel chapter 12. We will be looking at chapters 12 and 13 this evening, and as we do so, we, we are going to be applying two different but related truths. The first application, as we finish our sermon this evening, will be in regard to understanding the faithfulness of the promises of God. The second application this evening will be to understand the danger of false teachers. False teachers love to distort the promises of God. But it doesn't change the fact, as the scriptures testify, that God's word is true. It will come to pass, and we are accountable for it. So the title of the message this evening is Sure Signs of Swift Judgment. And as we begin, let's read the first seven verses of Ezekiel 12. The word of the Lord also came unto me, saying, Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, thou son of man, prepare thee stuff for removing, and remove by day in their sight. And thou shalt remove from thy place to another place in their sight. It may well be they will consider, though they be a rebellious house. Then shalt thou bring forth thy stuff by day in their sight, as stuff for removing, and thou shalt go forth at even in their sight, as they go, that go forth into captivity. Dig thou through the wall in their sight, and carry out thereby. In their sight shalt thou bear it up upon thy shoulders, and carry it forth in the twilight. Thou shalt cover thy face, and thou shalt not see the ground, for I have set thee for a sign unto the house of Israel. And I did so, as I was commanded. I brought forth my stuff by day, as stuff for captivity, and in the even I digged through the wall with mine hand, and brought it forth in the twilight, and I bare it upon my shoulder in their sight. As we begin this twelfth chapter of Ezekiel, we see God commanding Ezekiel to prepare his stuff for removing. When the Babylonians had come to take Ezekiel, as well as the many others that they came to take in that second captivity, it was probably expected that they would not have anything more than what they were willing to carry along that journey from Israel to the river Kibar. Most likely then, as they sat by the river Kibar near Babylon, all of their worldly possessions of these people would have fit into a, a single bag. And God tells Ezekiel to pack this bag and to sneak out of the camp, as it were, but in the sight of all Israel. Notice how many times in Ezekiel 12 we see that phrase, in their sight. And that is for a reason. Ezekiel is meant to be a sign. Meant to be a sign of something very important, a lesson that God had, God desired to teach to Israel. And he said that they are hard-hearted people. They probably will not receive this lesson, but Ezekiel, you're going to be this object lesson anyway. And so in their sight, he packed his bag, he snuck around. People are probably looking at him th thinking, what's crazy Ezekiel doing this time? And at night, he went and he dug through the wall as the Lord commanded him to do. He digs under this wall and he takes his stuff and puts it under the wall and he digs under the wall. Now there's nowhere to go. He's a refugee outside of Babylon. God says, you don't need to go anywhere, Ezekiel. You're going to be a sign. And by the way, as you're walking along the ground, I want you to cover your face so you don't actually see the ground. So here he is covering his face. 
walking around to the camp, sneaking around at night in front of everyone, digging through the wall, is a sign. Sign of what? What was the purpose of this sign? Well, the sign was to get everyone to say, what in the world are you doing, Ezekiel? 8 through 16 is the explanation of the sign. Look at it with me. And in the morning came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, Son of man, hath not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said unto thee, What doest thou? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, This burden concerneth the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel that are among them. Say, I am your son. Like as I have done, so shall it be done unto them. They shall remove and go into captivity. And the prince that is among them shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and shall go forth. They shall dig through the wall to carry out thereby. He shall cover his face. He shall not see the ground with his eyes. My net also will I spread upon him and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet shall he not see it, though he shall die there. And I will scatter toward every wind all that are about him to help him, and all his bands, and I will draw out the sword after them, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I shall scatter them among the nations and disperse them in the countries. But I will leave a few of them, men of them, from the sword, from the famine, from the pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the heathen, whither they come, and they shall know that I am the Lord. God says this sign is dedicated to one God, to one man. And that man, he says, is the prince in Jerusalem. However, this sign is not just, not it's, it's for him, but it's not to just him. Notice in verse 11, he Ezekiel is told to say, I am your sign. One of the blessings of the King James Version of the Bible is the these and the thous and the yous and the yours. People all the time complain about the these and the thous and the yous and the yours. Do you know that they have a purpose? Every time the King James translator uses thee or thou, the word behind it is singular, speaking to one person. Because in the Hebrew and in the Greek, they distinguish between speaking to one person or speaking to multiple people. Every time you, ye, or your is used in our King James Bibles, the address is to multiple people. And so while it says in verse 10, thus saith the Lord, this burden is concerning the prince in Jerusalem, the sign is not just to him because it says in verse 11, I am your sign, plural. Many people are to receive this sign. It's to be a sign to Israel and when this thing comes to pass regarding the prince in Jerusalem, all Israel is to understand and know that what Ezekiel is saying is true and that the nation of Israel is in trouble. So what exactly is this explanation? Well, this prince that is among them is going to have a problem. Now, the prince, as it is described here, is actually King Zedekiah. God calls him the prince because Zedekiah was a vassal king. He was set in place by the king of Babylon. He was actually not, he had no right, according to the lineage of David, to rule. He was not of that kingly line. He was, he was set up as a king, a stooge, a puppet of Babylon. And so God doesn't even call him the king in Jerusalem. He says, this is to the prince in Jerusalem. This is to that one 
who's not actually a king because he's not of the line of David, but who is indeed at the time ruling in Jerusalem. And God tells the people that this prince will sneak out of Jerusalem in the dead of night for fear of his life. Now, for a leader of the city to do such a thing would not only imply cowardice, but the leader of a city would not sneak out of the city in the dead of night until that city was absolutely hopeless, until there was no chance left that that city could be saved, that that city could uh, find any sort of refuge. Literally, there would be no hope left in the strength of the city. Recall some weeks ago as we preached through Ezekiel 11 that the princes of the city were saying to everyone in that vision, they were saying that people should build houses, that they should go on living as normal. The princes said, don't worry. Their specific words were, the city is a cauldron and we be the flesh. We are in a safe city. There's nothing going wrong. We're not in danger of judgment. We're not in danger of overthrow. Don't worry about it. We're going to be just fine. Now God says, there's going to be a sign, Jerusalem. And the sign is this. Your leader is going to sneak out in the dead of night and try to flee the city. But, the scriptures tell us, he will not escape. He's going to try to sneak out, but he's not going to get there. He's going to cover his face. He's not going to see the ground. They're going to catch him. God says, I'm going to catch him in my trap. And he's going to be brought to Babylon. And he's going to die in Babylon. But even though he's going to be brought to Babylon, and even though he's going to die in Babylon, he will never once set eyes on Babylon. When that comes to pass, know that the Lord is speaking to you and judgment is on its way. What in the world does this mean? One of the blessings of having the completed revelation of God is that we can look back on everything. And this account indeed did happen in the life of King Zedekiah. And let's take a look at that together. Second Kings chapter 25 in your Bibles, please. Second Kings 25, let's look at the first seven verses. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his hosts, against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night, by way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about. And the king went the way toward the plain, and the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king, and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah. And they gave judgment upon him, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon. Here we see an event happening on the tenth day of the tenth month in the ninth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Verse 2 tells us that they had been besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Let me put a few of those, those dates together for you. The siege ended approximately 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem. This vision began in approximately 589 B.C. or three years prior to the destruction. So Ezekiel is seeing this, this vision, or is seeing this sign, is doing this sign, 
sneaking through the camp, digging through walls. He's doing that about three years before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, one and a half years after his vision, the siege of Jerusalem will begin. And the scriptures tell us that the siege lasted 18 months. One year and six months, this siege of Jerusalem lasted before the city fell. That was right after Zedekiah flees the city. You can imagine how strong the the fortifications of Jerusalem must have been for them to withhold an 18-month siege. And so, during these 18 months, many of the prophecies of Ezekiel would have come to pass. The famine, the pestilence, people dying of the plague and malnutrition, people killing and eating their own children. All of these terrible conditions happening in these 18 months when there's no food, no one coming into the city, no one going out of the city, no place to dump their waste, no place to, no no food, just their stores, a, a terrible time. Now near the end of the siege, that's when the scriptures tell us in verse 4 that the city was broken up. The city was finally besieged. The, the walls were finally breached. And King Zedekiah, along with a group of the military men, fled in the dark of night, dug through a wall, covered their faces, and fled, seeking to get away from the armies of Babylon. Well, it didn't work. Verse 7 tells us that he was caught, and he was tried before the king of Babylon. And here's what the king of Babylon did to this king Zedekiah. While Zedekiah was standing there, the king took Zedekiah's children, sons, and had them all killed in front of his eyes. And right after Zedekiah had his sons, or the king had Zedekiah's sons killed before his eyes, they poked out his eyes. So that the last thing Zedekiah would have seen in this life was his sons being killed before him. And then, following his eyes being gouged out, they put him in chains and they carried him to Babylon as a trophy of what happens when a king rebels against Babylon. And so just as Ezekiel's prophecy said, this prince in Jerusalem would die in Babylon but would never actually see the great city. When this happened, all of Jerusalem was supposed to understand that God had warned them. Three years prior to the fall of the city, God had told them this is going to happen. And as we return to Ezekiel, we see the purpose in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, And they shall know that I am the Lord, when I shall scatter them among the nations. And then verse 16, the last phrase, And they shall know that I am the Lord. They would finally figure out at some point that, you know what, God had told us, He had warned us, He said it was going to happen, it happened, and they would know that He is the Lord. Verses 17 through 20 depict the terror that will be found in Jerusalem during those days, days of the siege. He tells Ezekiel to eat his bread with quaking and to drink the water of trembling, to literally sit there and eat his bread while shaking and to drink his water while shaking as if he's in great fear to show what it will be like in those last days of the siege. As we come to verses 21 through 28, God addresses another thought that would come up in the hearts of God's people. See, God's people had heard these prophecies before and their response to these prophecies is found in verse 22. The days are prolonged, and every vision faileth. This Ezekiel guy, he's been prophesying for a lot of years now. 
he ate the moldy bread and he made the little uh, the the diagram of of Jerusalem and he laid on his side and he laid on his other side and he did all of these things but nothing's happened we hear news from Jerusalem and every time we hear that the city's still standing and here crazy Ezekiel is again tiptoeing through the night digging under walls packing up his bags when there's nowhere to go covering his face so he can't see the ground as he's walking the days are prolonged every vision faileth it's not actually going to happen Israel don't worry he's just he's just blowing hot air God says in verse 22, what is that proverb that ye have in the land of Israel saying the days are prolonged and every vision faileth? Tell them therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease. The day is coming where the vision will no longer have failed. The day is coming where those days are no longer prolonged. Isn't it funny how we do this in our Christian lives? God tells us he's coming quickly. And he doesn't come. And he says, surely I come quickly. And he doesn't come. And we start to say, oh, okay, well, maybe I will just do what I want to do today and worry about it tomorrow. Because he didn't come yesterday and he didn't come today, so what's the likelihood that he'll come tomorrow? That was what was happening in Israel. Well, maybe we took this these prophecies kind of seriously at first, but, but every day that goes by is another day where Ezekiel's prophecies didn't come to pass, where Jeremiah's promises in Jerusalem didn't come to pass. These guys are either wrong or God is not a faithful God. He's not actually going to bring it to pass. God says, I will make these proverbs to cease. They will have no excuse any longer. Verse 26 says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say the vision that he seeth is for many days to come. And he prophesieth of times that are far off. Yeah, maybe someday Jerusalem will, will be destroyed, but not any time soon, Ezekiel. Therefore say unto them, verse 28, Thus saith the Lord God, There shall none of my words be prolonged any more. But the word of the Lord, the word which I have spoken shall be done, saith the Lord. God says, If you don't want my mercy, then you don't get my mercy anymore. Chapter 13 changes directions just a little bit. Among other reasons why this foolish proverb existed was the false prophets and prophetesses in the land of Israel. God takes it very seriously when somebody claims to represent him and he holds them accountable for what they say in God's name. There are certain privileges that accompany being called to be a minister of God. But along with those privileges come accountability and responsibility. Your pastor will one day stand before God and answer for a much greater responsibility than anyone else in this room. Not only do I answer for my wife and how I led her and my children and how I led them, but I will answer for this church. And throughout the ages, every man that has chosen to speak in the name of God or has willingly done so has had upon him this responsibility and accountability. And God proclaims a woe upon those prophets, men who are blind to God's word and follow their own minds, their own spirits, their own ideas, and yet still claim to speak for God. And so he says in verse 3, foolish prophets that follow their own spirits and have seen nothing. These are not prophets who are following the word of God. They're prophets who are following their own spirits. They have no idea what's going on. 
He goes on to describe these false prophets in a scathing and direct way. In verse 5, he says, You have gone up into the gap. You have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. You haven't been that man who stood up in the gap and was willing to stand between God and the people. You've led them astray. In verse 6, he says, Ye have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. The Lord saith, and the Lord hath not sent them. And they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. He says in verse 7, Have ye not seen a vain vision, an empty vision? And have ye not spoken a lying divination? Whereas ye say, the Lord saith it, albeit I have not spoken. These prophets are speaking lies. They are comforting the people with lies. God says, woe unto you, false prophets. In verse 10, it says that they have openly seduced God's people, announcing that God is promising peace and prosperity, when in fact God is pronouncing judgment. And God uses an illustration in verses 10 through 16 to describe the false prophets and what they have done against Judah and the consequences of their sin. He states that in response to God's proclamations of judgment against his people, they have figuratively built a wall of hope to protect the people from God's wrath. That as God's wrath has poured down upon God's people for their sin, that these false prophets have built a wall. Instead of standing in the gap between God and the people, they built a wall between God and the people. They are seeking to comfort God's people when there's no comfort there. They are seeking to insulate God's people against the wrath of God. And God says, you have built a wall, and, and this wall has been built, but these false prophets are using untempered mortar. I don't know if you've ever laid bricks, and perhaps you've gotten a bad batch of cement, or you've mixed it improperly, and so it's not the right consistency, and you put those bricks together and they start to crack. Uh, the, the, the mortar between them starts to crack, or maybe... Um, you've been in a house or, or known somebody in a house where they haven't had a good mortar around those bricks and, the bri and around it has started to crack and bricks have started to fall out and the integrity of the wall has been compromised because the mortar was, was poor. God says, prophets, what you are doing is your false words are, are taking untempered mortar, bad mortar, and placing it among all these bricks to erect this wall. It's not stable. It's not true. It's not solid. And God says, I will send a strong storm and I will break down this wall. And he says, I will not just break down the wall, the wall of these false words, but I will also destroy those who built the wall. What tremendous accountability resting on these people who claim to speak in God's name. But it wasn't just men. It wasn't just men. In verse 17, God speaks up against the prophetesses. He calls them the daughters of thy people, which prophesy out of their own hearts. In verse 3, God said the foolish prophets follow their own spirit rather than follow the Lord. Now in verse 17, the foolish prophetesses follow their own hearts rather than following the word of the Lord. God's people mustn't ever overlook the danger of men and women who speak their own ideas 
in the name of the Lord. Men who impose their thoughts and their own spirit and their own heart upon the word of God and in doing so, they build up a false wall of hope between God and the people. So whereas God is actually telling God's people, no, repent, turn to me and do what's right, in fact, these false prophets are saying, it's okay, don't worry about it, you're doing fine, building up a false wall with untempered mortar that will just fall to the ground. The scriptures say that these women use their words to dull the consciences of the people so that they will not fear God and they will not fear His word. Notice God's response to them in verse 20. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against your pillows wherewith ye there hunt the souls to make them fly. And I will tear them from your arms and I will let the souls go, even the souls that ye hunt to make them fly. Your kerchiefs also will I tear and deliver my people out of your hand and they shall be no more in your hand to be hunted. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. What a picture of these false prophets. He, he pictures them as hunters who are going around looking for God's people and seeking to destroy God's people with their false words of hope. God proclaims he will deliver his people from them. He will bring about the circumstances whereby no one will be able to deceive the people anymore. What a message. Let's apply these messages to our hearts this evening. We've learned a lot already. Now let's apply. In Ezekiel 12, verse 23, the Bible says this. This is 12, not 13. Tell them, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say unto them, the days are at hand, and the effect of every vision. In this verse, God invalidates a proverb that expressed doubt that God's promises would come to pass. God says His promises will come to pass. God says His promises will be fulfilled. And this assurance, ladies and gentlemen, is not just to Israel. Every promise of God in every age, in every generation, will find its perfect fulfillment by our faithful and unchanging God. Consider what the Apostle Peter told the believers in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. At the moment you believed on Jesus Christ to be saved from your sin, you became an heir to great and precious promises in Christ. What are some of these promises that we have in Christ? Salvation from wrath, Romans 5, verse 9. An inheritance with Christ, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Victory over sin, Romans 6, verse 14. Victory over the world, 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Fullness of joy, 1 John 1, verse 4. Peace. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Authority in the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. What tremendous promises you have been given. And the tremendous things found in God's word for us reveal 
that we have a great deal to look forward to. You know, God had given a lot of wonderful promises to Israel as well. A literal kingdom. Deliverance from all their enemies. A king on the throne of David. But there were some other promises given to Israel. As they were unfaithful to God, promises of judgment. Promises of wrath. Now, praise the Lord, through Jesus Christ, we have been saved from that judgment and that wrath. But you know, not every promise that we have been given by God is positive in nature. Consider some other promises. John 16, 33, he promises tribulation. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, he promises chastening for sin. Philippians 1.29, he promises suffering. Matthew 5.11, he promises blessings for our suffering. Take note of that last promise. For while the suffering and tribulation don't necessarily put a smile on our face, they ought to cause our heart to rejoice because we have the privilege of suffering for Christ, identifying with Christ, and thus fulfilling in us the example which Jesus Christ began so many years ago. And as God speaks to Israel, he assures them that he is faithful to bring about everything that he has promised, that his promises are true, that what God says surely will come to pass, and all of God's judgments shall come to pass. And all of God's blessings shall come to pass. What I love about every promise of judgment of God in the book of Ezekiel is that they're always with a promise of deliverance, a promise to the remnant. In verse 16 of chapter 12, he says, I will leave a few men of them from the sword. Even as he condemns these false prophets and prophetesses, he says, don't worry, Israel, I will deliver you from the hand of these wicked, false men and women. And as we consider this evening our own promises, one I missed that perhaps should have been up there. Surely God said, I come quickly. Let us remember that God's promises are faithful. Let us not be among those who say the days are prolonged and every vision faileth. Let us remember that God's word shall come to pass, that the wicked shall face judgment, that the righteous shall be delivered in the day of judgment, that there are indeed things awaiting us, but that we also have a job for today, and God has promised some things to us in regard to that job. That we are laying up for ourselves wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stone. That we'll, we will be rewarded and we will suffer loss. And that Jesus Christ could come at any moment of any day. And that we are called to occupy until he comes. Let us not be so foolish as to assume that we can live free today and make up for it tomorrow. Let us not be so filled with apathy that we fail to prepare ourselves for the sure return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us first make sure our salvation. Let us second make sure our service. Matthew 25 verse 13 says this, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Matthew 25, this exhortation comes at the end of a parable. The parable of ten virgins, if you recall. The text tells us there were five wise virgins. There were five foolish virgins. Five brought oil for their lamps. Five did not bring oil 
those virgins were waiting for their bridegrooms to come, and as they did so, they fell asleep. Till the time at midnight, they heard the midnight cry, the scriptures tell us. And those wise virgins trimmed their lamps and made ready to meet their bridegrooms. But the unwise, they ran out of oil before the bridegrooms came. And by the time they returned, there was not provision enough. They asked those that had been wise, give me some of your oil, please. And the, and the, bridegroom said, or the bride said, no way. We have enough oil to get to our bridegrooms. If we give you some, we may not have enough. We're going to get to our bridegrooms. And so they returned to get enough provision. These brides did. And by the time they came back, the door was already shut. The marriage had already begun. And it is within that context that Jesus Christ says for this parable, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. And that is indeed the main point. The promises of God are true. He is coming again. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 says, For all the promises of God in Him are yea and in Him amen, or truly or verily, unto the glory of God by us. God will keep His promises. God is coming again. And when we understand God's faithfulness and when we know of God's sure return, it must compel us to do the work, to work while there is day, to be prepared for His coming to win souls for Christ, to lay up treasure in heaven, to glorify our Father on this earth, and to raise up this next generation. One more application this evening. I told you there were two. The first is that we must never be among those who would say that the vision fails. Second, second, Ezekiel 13 verse 3 says this, Woe unto the foolish prophets. Every time I come to a, fast, a passage that warns against false ministers, I am renewed in my grief for both this nation and for its churches. But I'm not necessarily speaking to ministers this evening. I'd love to give a scathing rebuke. But you're not, you're not pastors. And so I'm not going to rebuke you for their sakes. That would be foolish. That's unnecessary. You don't need me to hear and to warn and to proclaim about divine condemnation and wrath that will fall upon the heads of the false prophets when they stand before God one day and they have to answer for every word that they say. But while the consequences upon these false teachers do not necessarily affect you in that direct sense, it is always my concern that the consequences of their ministries might. We ministers are a funny bunch. We really are. We get behind a pulpit which itself is a symbol of authority. That's why a lot of churches are getting rid of the pulpits because they don't want their pastors to look like they have any authority. They want to have conversations with them. But pastors, they get behind a pulpit and they speak for several hours per week or maybe just one hour per week, whatever it is. And we do this, we do this week in and we do this week out. And you know, we funny ministers can have a tendency to get the idea in our heads that what we think really matters. And when this happens, our ministry and our messages stop becoming thus saith the Lord and start becoming thus saith the pastor. And we don't say it that way, just as these false prophets of old. They say thus saith the Lord and then they speak out of their own hearts. They say thus saith the Lord and then they speak out of their own spirits. And they have their little conversations with their congregations whereby they go off on all of these 
places where the pastor and all of his experience and wisdom can tell you what you need to do, what you need to think. And I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's what happens in the heart of a minister when people come every week to listen to him. Well, by God's grace, you'll never come to listen to me. By God's grace, you'll come to listen to the Word of God every week, week in and week out for the rest of the time that I'm ministering here, for the rest of the time that you find yourself at Legacy Baptist Church. But there's that temptation. There's that tendency. Ezekiel 13.3, they prophesy out of their own hearts. They follow their own spirits. And the condemnation which God places upon this philosophy of ministry should guide our own decisions when it comes to those ministers under whom we submit ourselves. When a teacher or a minister is starting to do a lot more thinking than he is proclaiming. When a teacher or minister is spending too much time talking about himself and not enough time talking about God. When a teacher, a speaker, a minister is starting to give more of his opinion than he is God's proclamation, then he has begun to prophesy out of his own heart, to follow his own spirit. He will answer for that. But just as in the days of Israel, the consequences of his ministry might span well beyond just him. The consequences of selfish ministry are all around us in the country today. A 75% departure rate of our children from church is a consequence of pastors who have a lot of good thoughts in their head and want to be sure people think about what they have in their minds and in their hearts and in their spirits. A church that is so devoid of doctrine that they don't even know what the Bible says is a consequence of ministers who are teaching out of their own hearts. A misunderstanding of the character of God in salvation. A misunderstanding of the character of God in relation to social issues. A misunderstanding of even the church of God is a manifestation of pastors who are preaching out of their own hearts and out of their own spirits instead of out of the word of God. See, because the word of God will do its thing regardless of whether a pastor's up preaching it or not. How can they hear without a preacher? It is indeed true. But the word of God is what is the power, not the, the minister behind the pulpit. And so if the word of God is getting into the ears of the people, then the people will be right. If the word of God is not getting into the ears of the people, then the people won't be right. And as we look at the church today, which is not right, we can only come to one conclusion. That they're not getting the word of God. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 is an exhortation to preachers and it says this. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Place yourself under these ministers. I don't fool myself into thinking I'm the only guy you listen to. I know you don't. Maybe you do. I don't know. But I don't think so. Place yourself under these ministers. Place yourself under the men that will lead your heart to God's heart. That will shelter you from the danger of the winds of doctrinal change, of the fads of Christian culture, 
and of the itching ears of the people that are all around us. May God help us to count his promises as true, to place ourselves under the teaching of those who believe God's promises are true, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and who will willingly and faithfully declare those promises to God's people. And that is my exhortation to you this evening. Once again, simply to recognize that ministers have their own reward. Ministers have their own consequences. But ministers' consequences might just spread to those who are under them. God forbid that Legacy Baptist Church would ever become a ministry where the minister thinks what he has to say is important. God forbid that we should place ourselves under the ministries of men who would not lead us to the heart of God, but who would lead us to their own hearts. May we be discerning. May we be diligent. May we be careful. And may we remember that what God's word says is true. It's going to come to pass. We need to be faithful to it. And we need to be place ourselves under men who are faithful.